The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to come before your word together as your people. God, you're here. You love us. You're speaking to us. We just invite you to be here strongly and richly to each one of us. Lord, uh, let us be aware and awake to your presence and to your voice to us. Help me, Lord, with this passage. Help me to be helpful and encouraging and faithful. Uh, But just glorify yourself, Lord, to our hearts so that we see you and we love you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. A question I want to ask as we, as we hit our text this morning is, what do we do when Christians look just like the world? Do you know what I mean by that? There's a huge con- uh, conflict that happens so often. People, uh, Christians claim amazing things, right? I've met God. His spirit is in my life. I've heard his word. Amazing claims, we say. And then so often, heck, it's not just people out there, it's me, it's you. It's easy to live just like everybody else out there lives, as if meeting God made no difference. Do you agree? What do we do with this? Because sometimes we're no different in what we value or what we prioritize or, what, or how we live, and this is a problem, right? It's just a massive problem. How does it make Jesus look to the world when we live just like the world as we claim to know Jesus? Doesn't make him look good. And how does it make the church look? I mean, what is the big pop culture thing on the, on the streets to say? I don't go to church. Why? They're full of hypocrites. Okay? We live just like the world. It just gives an excuse to blow Jesus off. Huge problem. And just... Personally, the struggle is not just in us and in, in, in those we know. It's in me. There are still even parts of my life where I think, boy, this should be different because I have the Holy Spirit. So how do we approach the problem? It's, it's not a new problem, right? We see Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and we've seen from the last several weeks that they look a lot like the world around them. In fact, in many ways, they look worse than the world around them. They look terrible in what they think, what they value, what they boast in. And we've seen how this expresses itself in them, especially, I mean, we have like three and a half chapters on how they're fighting each other. And Paul's trying to deal with this church that has got, got these cliques and this infighting and this boasting and this quarreling. And so we can kind of sit with Paul and think, what do you do with a bunch of Christians that look way too much like the world? What do we do in relationships like that in our lives? What do we do when it's in us, ourselves? What do we do? And I, just, I feel like I need to take a step back here before we get to the text and say the way that you answer that question depends on what you think it means to be a Christian. How are you going to answer a Christian? How are you going to deal with a Christian that doesn't look like a Christian? Well, you, you better get your assumptions right about what it means to be a Christian. Because do you know what most people believe about being a Christian? Most people believe that to be a Christian is to follow a certain set of rules. It's doing things. Are you a Christian? And they'll hear, am I doing certain rules? And then they'll say, yeah, sort of. Yes, I'm a Christian. Or no, I don't follow certain rules. No, I'm not. 
George Barna, he's a pollster, he says three out of five church-going Christians equate Christianity with a list of moral rules to be followed. Three out of five, more than half of people who go to Christian churches say Christianity is following rules. This makes me so angry. It really bothers me so much. That's just a little lower than the unchurched. Christians and people who go to church and those who don't go to church think of Christianity as the same thing. It's following a list of rules. Well, if that's what Christianity is, then what do you do when people don't follow the rules or don't look like Christians? You tell them more about the rules. Follow the rules. If they don't follow the rules, I don't know. Hey, you idiots, get out of here. You're not following the rules. And think about this. We're looking at this church in Corinth and they're breaking all the rules horribly. And Paul never says, well, you're not Christians, we're done. So what does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that? Is it just follow the rules? Listen, I want to tell you as strongly as I possibly can, if you ever remember anything I've ever said, Christianity is not rule-based. It's not what it means. It's not, to, to do stuff, is, that's not Christianity. That's not how you become a Christian. That's not the core of being a Christian. Following a moral set of rules is not the heart of Christianity. It doesn't sound anything like Paul has been saying. If you've got your Bibles open on page 953, you should have right there on your page 952. Just listen to the flavor of what Paul's saying. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Follow the dang rules. <laughs> Grace to you. What's that? Undeserved love. Okay, do you know this? What is, what is grace? Undeserved love. The key part you need to hang on to is undeserved. But I don't deserve it. But they don't deserve it. I know, I know. That's what makes it grace. Undeserved love. Grace to you in peace from who? God our Father. Father. Now whether you had a Good father or a bad father, I hope you at least can grab onto the idea that a father is someone who loves and who protects and who provides and who blesses. That's what he's supposed to be. God is your father. Grace to you and peace from God our father. Down in verse 23, Paul will say, and he's repeating the idea over and over again, we preach Christ crucified. Crucified. The core, the heartbeat of Christianity, as Paul will say in chapter 15, the most important thing is the person and the work of Jesus. And the shocking reality of what he did was he was crucified for you. He personally came for us. He lived in eternal glory and he came and took on flesh and he suffered And he did what we couldn't do. Why? So we could keep a list of rules. No. So that he could bring us to the Father. He wanted to bring you to God as your Father. And only he could do it. He kept all the rules you broke. He's the one who did it. He did it perfectly. He died for your sin on the tree. And earned your forgiveness. He died for your rebellion. And he rose for you. So that just as he rose to new life. You would come alive to knowing and loving God. He rose for your adoption. That is a relational term. 
Is, is Christianity rule-based or person-based? It's person-based. Every other religious teacher says, this is the way. Jesus says, I am the way. Know me. This very bold old lady at Whole Foods last night while I was writing my sermon was trying to convince me how to get to heaven. <laughs> and uh, and she, pro- she professed a standard that she obviously could not keep and that I could never keep. And then she told me, it's not who you know that gets you in. And I said, oh yes it is. <laughs> it's who you know. It's personal. That's why it's by faith. Don't think faith is like a magic power out there. Let's use the word trust. And it's trusting a person. Do you have a relationship where you trust someone and you know that they'll keep their word because of who they are, their relationship to you? And even if they say something that's hard, you'd be like, I believe, I, I, I believe you. Faith is believing a personal God, a God who sent his son. That's a personal relationship. The father who sent the son to win you into a family by the power of the person of the spirit. We're not Jedis with the force of the spirit. We're children with the person of the spirit. It's personal, and it's by faith in a cross. I believe that you did this for me. I trust it. Amen. It's not a list of rules. Rules have a place because they show us what the person wants. But in the end, sin is not, I didn't keep certain rules. Sin is, I don't like you personally. That's what sin is before God. God, I don't like you personally. And I'll express that by breaking your rules. In Corinthians, Paul says, we do everything to please Jesus. When you love somebody, what do you want to do when you can? You please them. My wife doesn't give me a list of rules. I just, I I know her, and I love her, and I want to please her. Christianity is person-based. If that's true, then how do you motivate Christians who look like the world? It's different than just rules, right? This is not rule-based. The rules have a place because it shows us what the person loves. But it's person-based. The rules never did save you, and they won't now. How many of you are still, how many of you now you're Christians, you're keeping those rules all the time? Okay, right? Not one of you. Don't you hope in a person? And when a rubber hits the road and you're trying to keep the rules, aren't you praying, help me, I need you. Help me to love what you love. Help me to follow you. Because when you're brave, aren't you brave because you want to please him? You're not being rule-based, you're being person-based, and that's why you're trying to follow those rules. So Paul is not going to just slap them with rules. Everything is person-based. He's going to emphasize their heart towards God in so many different aspects. One is the right mindset, how you think towards this person. The second is the right boast. 
how you feel towards the value of this person. The third is remembering your identity that this person has given you, your true identity. And finally, holding on to that ultimate hope that you have, person-based, every one of them. That's what changes you. That's what makes you alive. That's what makes following Jesus great. That's what makes you different than the world, is pressing further in to this personal God who saved us. So let's see what Paul does as he reminds them of the right mind, the right boast, the true identity, the ultimate hope, and hopefully this will just press us in to Christ. Because we're not like the Corinthians, at least in no way that I can tell, in that we're all fighting each other all the time, right? One of the most happy, unified churches I'm aware of. I praise God for that. But there's always places of disconnect in us and in those we know where our lives aren't fitting what we claim. So how do we press in further? How do we obey better? How do we, well, this is how. So first, the right mind. They have a mindset they need to feed. Look at verses 1 to 4. My brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. (laughs) Do you see the walking contradiction these people are? Look at the third word, but I, what? Do you see it? I, brothers. So what does that mean about who they are? You're in the family. God's your father. We're family. It's, it's a Delphoi. It's brothers and sisters, family. And then at the very end of the sentence, end of verse 1, he says, in Christ. You're in Christ. Because remember, it's not your performance or rule keeping that gets you in Christ. Praise God. How do you get in Christ? How do you get connected to the Son of God? Believe the gospel. That's it. No religiosity, beauty, youth, wealth, race, status. None of it counts for getting in Christ. There's one thing that counts. Have you trusted the gospel? If that's real, you're in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? I trusted Jesus. That's it. My brothers in Christ. Okay, so this is who they are. And yet, what else does he say about them? I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So you're brothers in Christ, and yet I have to talk to you like you've never met the Holy Spirit. And like you're people of the flesh. Now that's a, a, a touchy word in the Bible. It can mean a lot of different things. It can mean your body, that's good. God likes bodies, he made them. Jesus wore one, is wearing one, will wear one. But the flesh also can mean your rebellious inclination. So, so when we say, when the Bible says worldly, the whole world and its systems and its cultures have a rebellious inclination. We don't like God, the real God, personally. And so Paul says, I have to talk to you, even though you're brothers in Christ, I have to talk to you like you've never met the Holy Spirit because you look, you live just like the world. The flesh is way too big in your life. Do you see this contradiction in them? And yet, are they Christians? He says they are. Uh, last week, we saw it in chapter 2. Paul contrasted, I mean, he's, he uses this word spiritual people. He contrasted the natural person versus the spiritual person. And what it means is the spiritual person has had the person of the Holy Spirit visit them and open their eyes to see Jesus. So last week we saw in chapter 2, verse 14, 
The natural person doesn't accept the, the things of the Spirit of God. They're f- folly to him. They're foolish. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So the natural person, it's not that they can't understand the facts we claim about the gospel. It's that they see no beauty in the gospel. They don't see any draw or wow factor to Jesus, his death and resurrection. In fact, they see value in other things more than the gospel, bigger than the gospel. That's why they don't want the gospel. This is better. I want this instead. They can't see the beauty of the gospel. But what the Holy Spirit does in chapter 2, verse 12, we've received the Spirit who's from God that we might understand the things freely given by God. That's specifically a value understanding. Or as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, we can see now the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Did you hear those just words pounded on each other? What's light? Beauty, radiance. Right of the gospel, what's gospel? Good news. It's good. You see how good it is. Light of the gospel, the glory. What's glory? Beauty, majesty, awe, light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Can you see how beautiful Jesus is and how precious what he has done for you on the cross is? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you trust it? Do you want it? If you did, that's because the Holy Spirit visited you, called you up and said, see, awake, no. And you went, ah, I need this. That's what it means to be a spiritual person. The Holy Spirit has shown you the beauty of Christ. And Paul says, it's almost like I have to talk to you like you've never seen it. Or look at it at verse 16. This is the huge contrast to me. Verse 16, the end of it, Paul says, We have the mind of Christ. By the Holy Spirit, Christians have the mind of Christ. What does that mean? That means we can... We can see what God has seen and we can think what God has thought as revealed in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can love what God loves. We can have his wisdom for life. We, can be, we are being made into the image of Jesus. That's his goal for your life. When I used to work at a college and college students would always be like, what's God's goal for my life? Should I marry Jenny or Sarah? And you'd be like, Romans eight twenty nine. He's The goal for your life is that you would be like Jesus. Okay. Be like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Value what he values. Then, yeah, go do something. Do it like Jesus. We have this. So Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. And then he says, I have to talk to you like you've never even heard of this. They're conflicted, aren't they? He says, you look like the flesh. You're thinking like the world. You're doing like the world. And he says, I have to treat you like babies. I have to feed you milk and not solid food. Uh, commentators, I agree, they seem to think milk is, the, the food that he's always feeding is the gospel, wouldn't you agree? Oh, it's always the gospel. So the solid food is like, since we love this gospel, let's work now on how to be mature in it, grow in it, apply it, live it out. Milk is, I'm still trying to convince you this gospel is worthwhile. Why do I have to spend a whole chapter talking about how the cross is better than worldly thinking? You should already know this. But they don't see it. So conflicted. And, and it's like they're immature. You know, kids are, kids are cute, right? When they're sitting in their high chair and they got mush peas on their face. When they're one and a half. It's not cute when they're 17. Dude, stop. It's not cute. When Christians who've heard the gospel and believed it live like the world. 
conflicted, immature. And then, and then his, well, wait, we're, the, the irony is the, the Corinthians thought they were spiritual. This was like on their resume. We're so spiritual. Look at our gifts. And he says, well, you're like babies. You're like unspiritual. And they'd be like, no, we're not. How can you say this? Look at his, look at his evidence in verse 3. You're still the flesh. For while there is, what, jealousy and strife among you. Are you not out of the flesh? What's an evidence that they're not thinking like Jesus? Jealousy. What's jealousy? You, you really think you should have or be or be recognized as something more than someone else, right? And what is jealousy an echo of? Pride. Pride. Emphasis on self and ego. You're jealous and you're strife. Why do we fight so many times? I'm fighting the way we fight specifically. Pride. I gotta win, I gotta assert. That's the flesh. It's the flesh. So we're in the middle of this argument here. What do you think Paul is saying they need to do? What do they have versus what they're doing? Imagine you buy a car for a college student. And you, you go to Albertsons one day and you see him getting off the bus. And you're like, what's up? What happened to the car? Oh, I just kind of afraid to drive it. Just didn't want to drive it. What? Isn't that what Christians are like sometimes? What do we have? What do we have? We have the mind of Christ. We have it. And yet what are we so often driving? The flesh. There is a pop culture proverb I think makes the point well. I'm embarrassed to say, I think I saw it on Facebook. So some of you can probably repeat this after me at this point. Maybe you heard it. It goes like this. One evening an elderly Cherokee brave told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, my son, the battle's between two wolves inside us all. One's evil. It's anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other's good. It's joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked the grandfather, which wolf wins? Do you remember the answer? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So much of that is echoing what was written by Paul a long time ago. As Christians, this is uniquely true for you. I'm afraid to say it, but if you're not a Christian, it's almost in a way not true for you. You don't have a power to fight sin from the Holy Spirit. Not like a Christian does. But through trusting in the gospel, and this promises we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, you really can, you are free from the slavery of sin, you really can choose which mindset to feed. Do you want to be like the one who saved you, and who's opened your eyes, and who's brought you into his family? Or do you want to be like the world? What are you going to feed? Get the right mindset. Think like the one who loves you. Isn't this, just, isn't this a little deeper than just rules? It's a lot deeper than rules. It's pressing in to loving and knowing and pleasing a person in how you think about things. 
So much of Christian worldliness is we just assume that the ideas the world gives us about what's good and bad and right and wrong about every part of life, we just assume it's true and good and real. And we haven't thought about what the gospel says about it. We haven't thought about what Jesus wants for it. Get the mind of Christ. Christians must feed the right mind that's already theirs in Christ. And I think this, to put an exclamation point on this, is, is the idea of seeking him. How do you get the mind of Christ? How do you get it? Well, if you read Proverbs, the way you get wisdom is to want it. How do you get the mind of Christ? I want it. Seek him. And I don't want to be cheesy, but the three Ps help me remember. Proclamation, prayer, people. How do you grow in the mind of Christ? Proclamation. You got to be in God's word. You got to get your head in God's word. Think like God's word. Understand it. Prayer. You got to pray it. Show me. Show me. Change my heart. Sometimes I have to pray, God, help me to love what you love. Right now I don't. Help me to love it. Give me your mind. Help me love what you love. And then people. We have, you cannot do this by yourself. People, prayer, and proclamation. Those things together will get you the mind of Christ. But seek it. There's a person who's changed you. Paul says, pursue the right mind. Also remember the right boast. Now the Corinthians, they lived in Corinth, and so they boasted in eloquence, power, status. And so the Christian version of this for them was to attach the name of a well-known Christian leader to their little club and use the names to fight each other. Isn't that awesome? So that's what they're doing. They're boasting in human leaders. So Paul wants to undo this big time. Look what he says in verse 5. What is Apollos? What's Paul? Apollos was a well-known pastor who'd been in Corinth. Paul obviously planted the church in Corinth. And he says, so what are we? And you see some, as he's undoing their boast in human leaders and trying to replace it somewhere else, you see some amazing thing about how to look at or how to see or value Christian leadership. We just walk through this with me. Look at what Paul says. Okay, this, how should you think about Christian leaders? That's what's on our mind right now. Who should you boast in? You ever heard anybody boast in Christian leader? I got baptized by this person. I heard that one. Um, I don't boast who I was baptized by because he later split a church. <laughs> but as we saw it earlier. Paul doesn't care who he got baptized by. He, got, he cares who you got baptized into. Okay, so how do we view leaders? Look at this. And then, then, again, this is Paul and Apollos. Is Paul fairly notable and important as a Christian leader? Apostle? Apollos is great as well, mentioned several times in Scripture. They're both great. How should you value them? Look at verse 5. We're servants through whom you believed as the what? As the Lord assigned to each. Jesus said, Paul, through you, these people will believe. Apollos, through you, those people will believe. And it's true for every other Christian that's ever spread the gospel. Through you, these people will believe. That's an amazing and holy thing. It has lots of implications. But the point is, if somebody led you to the gospel, appreciate them. Who sent them to you? God did. Why would you boast in them? Who ultimately should you boast in? Who's after you? God is. Boast in God. Or look at verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. Okay, so he compares the, the church to like a garden. I, I put the seeds down in the people that didn't believe, 
And Apollos came and preached later and you, and you grew. But okay, I planted Apollos water, but who gave the growth? Verse 6. God made it grow. If you've ever been influenced positively by any Christian leader, boy, be thankful for that. But who, di- who did it? Who was teaching you? Who was moving in you? God was. God was. Verse 7, this is powerful. So neither he who plants nor waters is anything. What are we? We're not anything in comparison to God. We're nothing. Christian leaders are nothing in comparison to God. Only God who gives the growth. We're nothing. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. We're on the same team. We have the same value, whether we're famous or whether we're small. We're one. We're on the same team for the glory of Jesus. And not only that, in verse 8, we're accountable for how we influence God's people. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. But what is Paul trying to get them to do? They boast in leaders, titles, names. And Paul says, gosh, that's ridiculous. Who should you boast in? God. Boast in God. Value God. As he said a couple chapters ago, we boast in Jesus Christ. He's the one who's changed us. Is he giving them rules? Or is he asking them to think about their hearts and the way they're valuing the God who saved them? Boast in God. So the question I have for us this morning is, what's the green on your neck? What happens when you get fake gold? And you're all blinged out on your boast. And we're all like, I see a little lime green there. Because it's not worth boasting in. What's yours? And don't let yourself walk out of this room and be like, I don't have any. I always boast in God. Okay. Then write the book for the rest of us. What's your boast? that squeaks over who God is. Because wow, does it influence how you live. Your knowledge, your religiosity, your grades, your, your beauty, your health, your denomination, your, your money, your status around your friends, your success at work. What do you... What are you boasting in? If we could take a poll of your friends and be like, what does that person value the most? What makes them tick? What do they love? What do they put their hope in? What would your friends say about you? Or how about this one? If we could interview your children and they said, what does your dad and your mom want for you the most? What do they want for you the most? What would your children say? I want to be gentle here, but if your children say a successful career you're doing it wrong. If your children say, they just want me to be happy, you're doing it wrong. What do we hope our friends will say about us? What, we, what do we hope our children will say about us? What are you boasting? I want to follow Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want him to be glorified in my life. Kids, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to love Jesus. That's the boast. What's your boast? It's person-based. It's not rule-based. Get your heart back on the only thing worth boasting in. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit who's loved you and saved you. Also, remember who you are. Remember your identity. 
Look, cast your eyes down on verse 16. This is absolutely incredible what Paul says. Remember, remember who he's talking to? He's talking to the Corinthians. They're a train wreck of a church, right? Lawsuits, all sorts of other stuff. And what does he say about it in verse 16? Don't you know that you are what? You are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells within you. It's hard to find a higher title than temple. Did you know every mosque is angled towards it's Mecca, right? And every year, hordes of Muslims go to Mecca. Because that's the place. And you know what every little mosque will never hear? They will never hear, you are Mecca. They'll never hear that. They will hear, you aren't. We have to go there. Maybe that can give you a sense of what the Corinthians just heard and of what you just heard. You, a fountain of life, you are God's temple. You realize how epic this is? For a first century Jew, where do you go to be in the presence of God? You go to the temple. Where's the priest who mediates for you from God and make, makes, you, makes you fit to be in the, in, in the presence at the temple? Where are the sacrifices done to earn your forgiveness, to celebrate gratitude of what God has done? The temple, the temple, the temple. And Paul just said to the church in Corinth, you're the temple. And I'm telling you, you're the temple. You're the temple. How can this be? How can they be the temple? How can we be the temple? Well, it's, again, it's person-based, right? How can we say you're the temple? Because by faith in the cross, you've been connected to Jesus. Who's he? He's the temple. He's the temple. He's the presence of God. He's the priest who offered himself. He's the sacrifice who makes us right with God. He's the temple. And when we trust in him, we're united to him. And guess what that makes us? The temple. We are the presence of God together. Do you remember who we are as the church? Does the Bible ever say we're priests? Are you a priest? You sure are. You're a royal priesthood. I think that was the first sermon I ever preached here, First Peter. You're a royal priesthood. You represent God to the people. Secondary, of course, Jesus is the ultimate priest. But in Christ, you're a priest. You're a priest. You're a priestess. Do, you, do we offer sacrifices? Romans 12, I urge you. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a, a sacrifice. Your whole life is your sacrifice of love and gratitude to God who saved you. Uh, and is God's presence here? If you want to be with God, don't fly to Israel. Somebody's like, I got baptized in the Jordan. That's cool. I'd like to see it myself. But again, I don't think it's about the water you were baptized in. It's about who you were baptized into. Is Jesus here? He is here by his spirit, under his word. We are the presence of God. Wow, to remember that identity, that helps you live differently. And again, it's not rule-based, it's person-based. Look who you are because you're in Christ. Look who we are. And then Paul builds on this and he says, we influence one another and we need to take that seriously. So in verse 10 he says, I, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation so he's thinking of his Corinthian temple. I laid the foundation. What's the foundation of the temple every time? It's Jesus and him crucified. When you believe that, that builds us. That makes us. But then he says, 
Look at the end of verse 10. Let each one take care of how he builds on it. So Paul here has in mind leaders in the Corinthian church who are not, not leading well. But who else is this for? How many of you influence God's temple on earth? It's definitely for me. I'm a pastor. Take care. I have to take care of how I work on God's temple. Anybody else? You. Us. We influence the temple. Remember, he's talking to people who are fighting in church and they're tearing down their own temple. And so he's saying, look who we are and then apply that reality of who we are and how you treat one another. Look what he says in verse 12. There's a test coming. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. What's the day? Jesus is coming. And what's, what's Jesus going to test? He is going to test my influence on you and your influence on us. He's going to test it. And some work will be revealed by fire as gold, silver, precious stones. How do those things do in fire when they pass through? They get refined, right? And these are also things that would be on the temple, in the temple, Old Testament speaking. So this is good temple work here. So through the test, it's going to come out and go, yep, that's good. And what will be the, the result will be? Verse 14, if the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a what? A reward, good job. You built, you influenced the temple towards the foundation of the temple, which is Christ and him crucified. But then wood, hay, straw, how do those do in fire? Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. When you think about Jesus coming back and he tests your work, your influence. Is your work going to last? It will if it's based on Jesus and him crucified and all those implications. If it's based on the word of God, it will. It will last. Were you there? Were you loving? Were you faithful? But what other influence do we have in the church on the temple? be honest, sometimes it's like I just abandon the temple. I let it pick up cobwebs. There's cracks in the wall. I don't care. I don't do anything. But even then, say your work wasn't great. What happens to you? Verse 15, if you believe in Christ, you'll be saved. Isn't that awesome? I'm so thankful for that. Some of my work will go up in smoke. But it's okay. The lady at Whole Foods is wrong. It is who I know. But Paul takes the warning one step higher because there are some, some in Corinth who need to hear it. Verse 16 to 17. Don't you know you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will what? Destroy him. How do you feel about that passage? You know, it's Mother's Day. So, ladies, mothers, how do you feel if someone tries to destroy your child? Eternal fire sounds about right, doesn't it? You're loyal. 
That's your people. This is person-based. How does God feel if someone tries to wreck his people and pull them away from Christ? It's personal. These are my people. It's my bride. It's my church. It's my family. It's personal. God will destroy him. So if anybody in Corinth was that person, hopefully they're like, I repent, Jesus, forgive me. (laughs) Coming back to the cross. But we need to remember who we are and take seriously our influence on one another. But again, this is person-based. It's not rule-based. It's who we are in Christ and who we are together. And because of that, let's love one another. Let's stay Christ-focused. Let's influence one another well as God's temple. Let's be different. Let's be holy. Let's be loving. Last one, Paul says, we need to look at what we have. Remember the hope that we have. In 18 to 20, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So he's saying in worldly wisdom... Christianity looks stupid, and the cross looks stupid. But worldly wisdom is stupid. It can't answer the ultimate questions. It can't save you. It can't make you right with God. So go ahead and be an idiot when it comes to the world so that you can know real wisdom, which is Christ and him crucified. Verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Look, God, we're so smart. I got a PhD from this place. Do you know me? Have you trusted in the cross? Paul says, you know this from the Bible. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. He catches the wise in their craftiness. You know, they, they fall apart in their own godless wisdom. But, to conclude, verse 21 for us. So let no one boast in what you never boast in, your ultimate value. No one boasts in men. Let's just go ahead and, oh, we can go ahead and say that's humans, right? Can't we just go ahead and say that's anybody but God himself? Why would you put your ultimate boast in anything other than God himself? And here's why. And here's why. Because that's bad. It's not rule-based. Lift your eyes. And now I do not have the homiletical preaching skill to open this passage for you the way I want to. Do you feel this way when you read it? Look at this, what it says. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking to us. Let no one boast in men for why. Will you read that next phrase with me? All things are yours. What? Some of these people in Corinth are slaves. Not all of us are super wealthy. What do you mean? All things are yours. And then he mentions every teacher. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, that'd be Peter. Every teacher's yours. In fact, Paul says the world is yours. Life, death, it's yours. The the present and the future that's yours. Everything is yours. What? What does he mean? Again, it's person-based. Who owns everything? Who in Revelation that says there's a guy who holds the keys to death and hell? That's a, that's a picture of like authority. You know what keys do? They open, they turn it on, they make it work. The key to death? Who holds the key to death? Jesus. Because he walked right through that door and rose again. Who owns this world and the next? Jesus. Who's reigning over the present right now? Jesus. Who has a plan for the future and knows exactly where it's going? Jesus. Who says, I'm going to make a place for you. I'll come back and get you. Jesus. Who, who can say that God is his unique personal father and they've been loving each other for all eternity? Jesus. 
And who belongs to you? Jesus. And you belong to him. Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. Because right now he uses everything he has for you according to his plan. And in that day, he will give you his inheritance of everything. Do you see what you have? Of course you don't. I don't either. But I just want to see a little more. Do you see what we have? Everything is ours. No matter how humble or poor or naked we feel right now. In Christ, it's all ours. And again, how did we get this? How did you get everything? It's mind-blowing. Did you, do, did you keep the rules and you got everything? Is that how you did it? What did you do? It seems like you should have made some massive you know, sacrifice to get everything. What did you do? You received everything when you trusted in the message of the cross. And you were united to him. And everything was yours. Does that seem too good to be true? That's why we call it gospel. It's really good news. You have it. Every leader is ours. Uh, our reform tradition says there's not one, play, one square inch of the world where Christ doesn't say mine. Right? Kiefer. We say all truth is God's truth. Is there's a truth? Guess what? It's Christian. Because Jesus made it. It's all ours. That frees us for science, for politics, for every aspect of life in the world. All truth, God's truth. It's his, it's Christ. He's, he made it, he saves it, he owns it. Every leader, can you learn from every leader? Can you learn from anything? Yeah, if you find any truth anywhere, it's Christ. It's his, all the leaders are yours. Why would you fight about this? The world, the world now, it's his. It's yours, he gives us what we need. The next world is ours. Life, listen, your birth, your new birth, your eternal life forever. Jesus has that in his hands and it's yours in him. The present is for your good, the future it's yours. You guys, if you believed this, would it change the way you lived? If you knew who you were and you knew what you had and you were free from all the demands and the bonds and the grabs and the pressures of this world, would you look different? Of course you would. It's person-based. This is what makes us different. A new mindset. Through faith in Christ, I have the Holy Spirit. I can have the mind of Christ. Seek it. It's person-based. I have a new boast. God is the one who's done everything for me. He's everything to me. I have a new identity. I'm a part of his holy temple. And my hope is I have everything in him forever. Person-based. He knows me. He saved me. I'm his. And we can be different because we belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the beautiful things you promised to us. Any place, Lord, where we're like the Corinthians and we're, we're, we're fake, we're halfway, Lord, let us see where we're not relying on you or trusting in you. Lord, if anybody in here is... Is, is not yet a Christian, I pray that they would be, they would see really it's not following a set of rules, it's trusting in a person and that they would trust in that person right now and that they would know that they're a Christian. 
Because it's by your grace and it's through faith. And that's it. And trusting in you, that does it. They're new. They're changed. They're different. Let them see it. Let them taste it. Let them believe it right now. Lord, for those who are Christians, help us to, to see how we look just too much like people who've never met you. And help us mourn that. And help us want to press in further to be different, to be faithful, to think like you. To love you the most. To treat one another accordingly. And to hope in what we have in you. Lord, press that in. Show us how to have joy and trust and peace and a life of obedience through knowing your love for us and that we belong to you. Do this in us, we pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.